And then we have our true anxiety, which is not something we should be pathologizing. And it's not something that we could gluten-free or decaf coffee our way out of. It's our inner compass. It's a true north tapping us on the shoulder, nudging us to slow down and pay attention. Hello. Hello. Welcome to At Home. This is a place where we explore all the nooks and crannies of what makes us feel at home. The good, the meh, and the messy. We've been together over 10 years and we still have a lot to learn about each other. (laughs) I've been with myself for a long time and I still haven't figured myself out. It's a process. Well, there will be heated debates. Yeah, because Drew has very strong opinions Mm -hmm. about everything, like leaving the toilet lit up. Well, hey, we'll just bring in experts to help us solve those. What about you, though, leaving hair dolls in the shower? Ew. Uh, Those are gifts. (laughs) Yeah, that no one wants. This is all a part of our life at home. Well, hello, everybody. Hello. Do I sound tired yet? Yes. You sound, sound, you sound tired. I sound stuffy. You sound stuffy and tired. And allergy It's the pre-baby stuffiness? Yeah. Is that a pregnancy thing? Pregnancy stuffiness. Is that actually a thing? I've heard it's a thing. Hmm. And I just always have bad allergies, so. True. So you've always been pregnant? <sighs> yeah, with <laughs> fries. Yeah. <laughs> but we are doing good. We are, we're pretty well baby ready. Like the nursery is looking good. We're just waiting on one furniture piece. I feel like Drew says that all the time. You're such an optimist. I'm a positive person, yes. That's great. Yeah, but even if it's not ready by the time baby comes, I'm at this point, I'm just like, yeah, it's all good. It is what it is. (laughs) And we have my boobs and our bodies and formula if we need it. Oh, so I thought you were talking about the things we've been doing this week. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I was so confused. But um, aside from that, though, like baby is one side of things. Your birthday was the other, April twenty second. And how, Earth Day. And Earth Day, yes. For your birthday, how did you feel this year? Um, it's different. This is the only time you've ever been pregnant on your birthday. It's true, and it's going to be the last time. It's going to be just us on our birthday. That's very true. On my birthday and on your birthday, if the baby doesn't come before your birthday. That's true. So we should party it up so hard. Okay, we will definitely party it up. <laughs> we'll have apple, what is that? What's that sparkling apple, sparkling cider? Yeah, Martinelli's. Yeah, we'll, we'll have some of that to celebrate. Um, but yeah, was it different for you for your birthday? Just sort of... I think it was just more, it felt more reflective. Yeah, it just feels more reflective knowing what's to come mm-hmm. and just, yeah. Just you, you said that like it was the impending doom to come. <laughs> the impending <laughs> doom to come. Every year, as you guys know, we check in on Earth Day with what we have been doing and what we can do more of. You know, even like Refillery LA, we've been using them for the past over a year, which is really great to have that habit of not getting, you know, single use plastics and stuff delivered to us for things that we can just refill. On set, we've been incorporating more composting and different uh, reusables as well. So it's all the little tiny small things. I just, I feel good because it's always in the back of my mind now. So whenever we're doing something, Mm -hmm. even for restaurants with takeout, we're only ordering from restaurants that we know are using compostable materials instead Mm -hmm. of plastics. Yeah. And of course we're looking for brands that have more responsible packaging 
Yeah. Oh, well, still. that's why I like, you know, our modular sofa that we got from Burrow. Yeah. I like that their packaging was great. They even have these little pouches. I would use it like as a toiletry bag. It looks so nice. Yeah, they are cute. Instead the of just bag. having plastics wrapping yeah. everything. And actually, Jackie, our friend Jackie just suggested that we check out this company called TerraCycle. And they help you recycle the unrecyclable. I need to look this up, but like Tetra packs and stuff. I'm, I'm going to look it up and then we'll share more information. But I thought that was really cool. Lots of cool stuff, especially in two days. The coolest of stuff. My birthday, no big deal. <clears throat> Are you ready? Big, big, big gift ready for me? <laughs> what do what you want it? for your birthday? I just want time with you. You just want time with me? What do you want to do though? I want to chill. I want to watch a movie. I always just want to watch a movie. You want to go to a movie or you want to, you want me to set up like we did, was it last year we set up a movie night for you? That's, well, if we set up a movie night here, like in the backyard, then I'll be the one setting up the theater that's, screen. That's true. But that's fine. I can do that. I just want a movie. We'll grab, you know, some snacks and we'll just cuddle up on the sofa and, and watch. That sounds lovely. Done and done. Let's get to the point of this week's conversation because it's an exciting one. Dr. Vora has attended Columbia University for medical school and received her BA in English from Yale University. She's a board-certified psychiatrist, acupuncturist, and yoga teacher. And we're so excited to talk with Dr. Ellen Vora because she takes a functional medicine approach to mental health. And of course, we've had so many conversations about mental health and anxiety, so it's always a good time to talk about this stuff. Yeah, and also she focuses on everything from physical health, sleep, nutrition, digestion, thought patterns, relationships and community, you know, to our connection with nature, creativity and life's purpose. It's interesting too, her, her work suggests that some symptoms of anxiety are frequently a result of physical imbalance. Mm -hmm. So it's really, for me, it's cool to dive into what is mental, what is physical and what are those connecting highways between them? Yeah. Yeah. How it affects one another. And it, it makes solutions more accessible. And, you know, Linda's going to be having a baby any minute now. And there is a lot of anxiety that can come as a part of this build up and process to having a baby mm -hmm. and afterwards. How are you feeling? Are you feeling anxious about? I'm not feeling everything? anxious, but maybe no, after either. we talk to Dr. Vora, she'll point out some things like that pain mm -hmm. that I'm feeling in my hips. Maybe <laughs> that is my anxiety in my hip. Uh, you've been up. feeling that for like, 15 years. My hips have been anxious for a long time. <laughs> and your hips don't lie. <laughs> exactly. This is Dr. Ellen Vora. Okay, if ADT wasn't professional enough, now ADT installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. I mean, what are they going to do next? They're, they're going to start a country singing career. I would listen to a country band named ADT. Also, I like to know what's happening at our front door from virtually anywhere with my Google Nest doorbell. Just saying. Your Google Nest doorbell? I said our. He said my. Everybody check that. Yeah. All right. Well, I like to control my ADT smart devices like my lights, my locks. <laughs> My security system with Google Nest speakers and displays. And I like to say, hey, Google, to get started. Listen, I said ours. I'm all about ours, not mine. <laughs> Help protect what matters most with all this, plus 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help make your home smarter and safer. You have a great book. What propelled you now to write a book called The Anatomy of Anxiety? 
Yeah, I'm terrible at telling like a clean story that has just one plot line. So I'll do my best. But here's the idea is that basically I'm a psychiatrist in private practice and every single person coming into my office was struggling with anxiety to some extent. So that was certainly a factor. And I, you know, kind of interact with patients, but I also interact with the world of social media. And there I was seeing this outsized problem and many people in need of a different way of supporting their mental health. And I just saw the scale of that problem. And I felt like there's only one of me. There's not enough people taking kind of creative, different approaches to mental health. So I was like, I think I just need to write a book that can then go and pollinate the world with these ideas and start to address this immense need. You know, a lot of it had to do with my own struggles with my health and how I've figured out how to get myself back into balance. And that was really influential, sort of happening in parallel while I'm learning how to get my patients well, I'm learning how to keep myself well. And I've kind of wanted to make other people's journey a little bit more efficient than mine was. Mm, That's so valuable to hear because often when we talk to experts, you think, oh, they are already all-knowing um, and they've reached some sort of enlightenment where they don't experience anxiety or or they do and they have this like, you know, this, a, a button they hit and it's like, oh, dealt with it. Mm-hmm. All good. Moving on. To the contrary, um, in many ways, I have my medical training, like medical school and residency, and that's one credential that I offer. But a very important credential is the fact that I've gone through a lot of this and And I think that part of the reason I stay in balance at this point is because I allow myself to move through challenging emotions. I really feel my feelings. I cry with regularity. When things are hard, I'm really there with that. And I found that's critical for me staying globally in a state of overall well-being. So much of what I wanted to convey in the book, ideas like not holding ourselves to the standards of perfectionism, being kinder to ourselves, being compassionate with ourselves, recognizing that all we can do is do our best, our reasonable best, and that that's good enough. These were principles that I had to keep, you know, turning the mirror on myself in the writing process as a slightly recovering perfectionist who was writing this book while parenting in a pandemic with unpredictable childcare, which you guys will learn all about that journey. Mm-hmm. And it was such a challenge. And I really drew on reserves of how to be soft with myself and how to find inspiration and to sort of, that was a whole spiritual journey of the writing process was that this isn't just muscling through ideas. This was tapping into what ideas needed to come through me that the world needed right now. You mentioned we we will experience all the all the joys of parenthood and I think right now we're especially interested in this topic because we know there's so much joy coming and we're exp- going through it now. However, we know that with parenting comes a slew of anxieties. People keep asking like are you nervous yet? Are you anxious? Are you blah blah? I'm like, I don't think I feel anxious, but I find it hard to decipher within my body like am I not feeling anxious or am I numbing and I really have to think about yeah. what I'm feeling. Cause I, I don't feel anxious yet. Yeah. Who knows how, but, but who knows is, is your, <laughs> is your anxiousness, that stiffness in your back? Like Maybe. is, is the anxiety something that's not, because that's what we hear all the time that anxiety is a mental thing, but how do you define anxiety? You know, I absolutely think people hold anxiety in their body. And when you are eight months pregnant or so, there is a strain on the lower back. That's just 
a physical <laughs> inevitability. So I think, you know, it, that could be purely physical. Yeah. Um, if you're not identifying with anxiety, I don't think there's any real reason to go sleuthing for it and be like, are you just in denial? It's mm. okay to not feel that. Um, all the questions that parents ask of expecting parents, they're always well-meaning and they're always a little bit off-putting. You know? <laughs> it's like, you can just have your complete own process. Your child will be its complete own person. And there just aren't, you know, one size fits all answers with the parenting experience because all these children, just like adults, are all so completely different. Mm-hmm. How do I define anxiety? I think that really it can show up so many different ways. Some people experience it as fear of the future, discomfort with uncertainty, a feeling of dread. For some people, it's chronic. It's all the time. They can't relax. They can't unwind. They're always worrying. There's a lot of ruminative spirals. For some people, it's the occasional panic attack that happens out of the blue. For others, it's a healthy baseline and then social anxiety that's paralyzing. Mm -hmm. Um, And for other people, OCD or PTSD, there's so many ways it can manifest. For some people, it is something more body-based, but I'm really interested in investigating the two-way street there. Like we think it's our anxiety causing our back pain or our IBS. And I think that's true. And I think modern life can cause our IBS and that in turn can cause our anxiety. So Mm -hmm. that's something we can get to. Postpartum, I think the postpartum anxiety experience is something we're not yet talking enough about. Don't be suggestible and think like you're inevitably going to become anxious. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of women that experience anxiety in the postpartum period and don't necessarily know to identify that or how to address it. And I'm a big proponent of maternal mental health advocacy in general. But I do think that we need to be broader in how we're thinking about it. And a lot of people are thinking like, you just need to get help. You need to see a psychiatrist. You need to go on meds. And I think that can be the right path for many people. But I also think we need to be, we just need to think in terms of biologic plausibility, what's happening here. And -hmm. in addition to the sleep deprivation and the role transition and the strain on the relationship that can happen, there's also this immense nutritional depletion that happens Mm -hmm. in the postpartum period. You grew a baby, birthed a baby. There's sometimes bleeding in labor. You might be nursing. There's so much depletion of your best nutrients and it just takes some time and being somewhat crafty to replete all that lost nutrition. And so Mm -hmm. I think a lot of anxiety in the postpartum period It's both that we develop this new part of our brain that's like worried about the safety of our children. And that's a survival advantage. It's a good thing. Um, It can be a lot, but it's a a good thing. But then we're also just so depleted and we need to nourish ourselves and, and make sure that we're getting rest and drinking the broths and eating the stews and making sure we're just using every bite to try to build back our nutrient stores. Yeah. You know, one thing that I always thought was interesting, I used to be a personal trainer back in the day. And when, when I worked at the gym, myself and the other trainers, we would have a lot of moms that would come in and just hit the gym hard to get back into shape after having their baby. And I always thought, wow, that's so impressive. Like, good for you within a matter of weeks getting in there and working it really hard to, to get back to that the, the shape that they wanted to be in. But it wasn't actually until recently that I thought about it when we were, Linda and I have been reading more and more that how unhealthy that is because you're already depleted of so many, so many nutrients that you need. And then in many ways, when people are trying to hit it really hard to get healthy again, they're reducing the caloric intake and the nutrients that they need to try and get there. So now they're depleting themselves even further. And that doesn't even address the mental or emotional pull 
of, you know, that ex- societal expectation, expectation of, yeah. of bouncing back or, or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. That pressure. And I really, I have so much, like I have so much frustration with that societal expectation and that pressure on women. And I also have so much compassion for the fact that even if we didn't live in the patriarchy with fashion magazines telling us what our bodies should look like, even without all of those factors and influences, in the postpartum period, you do feel a little bit like I don't recognize my own body. Mm-hmm. And that's an uncomfortable sensation. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if nothing else, we just need to have this superhuman ability to be patient and compassionate with our bodies and to recognize with awe what it just achieved. Like it grew mm-hmm. a person, it birthed yeah. a person, it's keeping a person, it's sustaining life through feeding a person. And it that comes with stretch marks and skin flaps and all these things, but it's also um, just so remarkable. And so I really constantly tried to reframe rather than being uncomfortable with this different body to be, to really stand in admiration and appreciation for what it just did. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you really reframe your approach to anxiety. Can you talk a bit about that, how you categorize them and then how you approach managing different anxieties? In my book, the central thesis is to really think about anxiety differently than how we've all been taught to think about it. We're we're taught, we're indoctrinated with the idea that mental health is kind of the neck up and it's this genetically determined chemical imbalance that creates our states of suffering like anxiety. And there's some merit to that, but I don't think it's the whole story. And I think it can be a somewhat limiting belief. It can make us feel like our mental health is a fixed destiny um, and that there's not a whole lot we can do, especially if we're one of the millions of people for whom medication isn't sufficiently helpful, then you can start to feel pretty demoralized and hopeless and just be like, well, then if this doesn't work for me, am I just stuck? Am I a hopeless case? So I'm really here with a message of empowerment and hope for people who are not yet sufficiently helped by mental health as it currently stands. I've observed in my practice that a more useful classification system is false anxiety and true anxiety. That false anxiety, it's our avoidable anxiety. It's based in the physical body. And it's usually some aspect of modern life that trips our body into a stress response. And that feels identical to anxiety or even panic. And the key is that we can identify the root cause of it and eliminate it. And I don't call it false to invalidate the very real suffering of false anxiety. I was in a state of false depression for several years. There was you know, the suffering is very real, um, but the the basis is physical and there's a straightforward path out of it. And then we have our true anxiety, which is not something we should be pathologizing. And it's not something that we could gluten-free or decaf coffee our way out of. It's our inner compass. It's a true North tapping us on the shoulder, nudging us to slow down and pay attention. It's usually saying to us, with kind of a call to action baked into it, you know that there's some truth in your life right now that you're not fully acknowledging. And it's it's just, it's asking us to translate that feeling of helplessly mired in our anxiety into some kind of purposeful action. And that really transmutes the feeling out of anxiety into a feeling of purpose. With false anxieties, can you give an example of how like our physical behavior can cause certain anxieties? Blood sugar crashes create a lot of unnecessary suffering and a lot of anxiety. Um, Being systemically inflamed, usually from eating foods that we don't tolerate or processed foods, 
or having an unhealthy gut that can all leave us inflamed and feeling uneasy. Um, chronic sleep deprivation, which often goes hand in hand with doom scrolling at night and sort of staying on our devices late at night, which suppresses our melatonin and impacts our circadian rhythm. So we're not getting tired at the right time and we're not sleeping enough. I'll see people with hormone imbalance. Often there's poorly managed autoimmune diseases that can show up as mental health issues and even micronutrient deficiencies. Just being a little bit low on things like vitamin B12 or iron can impact how we feel mentally. One is actually a side effect of other medications. So I'll see patients who were put on the birth control pill and shortly thereafter became depressed or anxious. And it wasn't until years later that we identified that correlation. And and so getting them Mm. off of exogenous hormones is actually what got them out of feeling Mm. anxious. Can you describe a little bit of how someone, if that's where they have been, where it's been very reactive, instead of um, trying to, you know, take a healthier approach to looking within instead of just capping it. How do you make that shift? What's the, what are ways that somebody can make simple changes that can, when they look back, say, wow, that was a drastic difference and now I'm feeling like I'm taking a healthier approach? Yeah, I mean, it's a mindset shift first and foremost. It's basically to understand that our mental health issues are not necessarily a genetic destiny, that genetics loads the gun, but environment pulls the trigger. And we don't really control our genes, but we do have some say in our environment. It's not always easy, um, but there's little things that we can do to make incremental adjustments to our environment. So the way I describe it in the book is I want my book to be like a buffet. So it's not like, here's 50 things that you have to do to improve your anxiety. Like any anxious person would just feel more anxious with that message. I basically say, here's a buffet of different things to consider. And you'll know what feels approachable or accessible. You'll know what resonates. You'll know what freaks you out. And you're just like, no, thank you, hard pass. Mm -hmm. And so I think we kind of need to think about it as like the false anxiety is the low hanging fruit. You start there, you identify what might be contributing to unnecessary suffering in your life start to address that, make little changes, feel a little bit better. And that kind of clears the air. And then we have more clarity to be with our true anxiety. And then I think after you've had that embodied felt experience of I made this change in my diet or lifestyle and I feel better, you start to recognize that we're not stuck in our mental health issues. It's a lot more up for debate than we've been taught. How do you, if you have a family that you're working with, you know, partners that their anxiety or their triggers are like the opposite. So here's an example with Linda and me. I love big group get-togethers. I just, I love sort of, I don't know, lack of better terms, work in the room and talking to everybody. That is Linda's nightmare, is to have a big get-together. Like uh, we joke that at our wedding, we, we had 305 people at the wedding. And Linda was like, how on earth are we possibly going to see everyone and they're all here for us and we want to take the time and all of a sudden it built up all this anxiety for Linda. But I loved it because it was just a little bit of chat here and a little catch up there. So how do you work with uh, partners that if the the root of their anxiety is the polar opposite of the other person's, you know, what, what is exciting to the other person? Okay, it's tricky. Um I don't really think either person should compromise their values. Mm. Um, And so you want to work some kind of arrangement where you get that need. I mean, we're sort of describing extrovert versus introvert Mm -hmm. to simplify it. And as an extrovert, you have a fundamental need for social connection. It buoys your energy. And without it, you know, extroverts without social connection are these wilted flowers. They're like, 
you know, mm-hmm. what's the point? And <laughs> um, this dynamic exists in my partnership as well. My my partner is like 99% extroverted. In the pandemic, he was just this wilted flower. Mm. And I am a highly sensitive snowflake of a nervous system. And for me, like I love to be around people, but then I'm deeply depleted afterward and need a lot of recovery time. So we've found a dynamic where, you know, sometimes we're getting that need of his met together and sometimes he's doing it on his own. And I craft a lot of recovery time afterward. Because I think even the introverts among us, it's not that we don't like social connection. We like it on our terms. Mm -hmm. And so a big group might turn us into a deer in headlights, but maybe one-on-one or two-on-two can feel good. So then there's a compromise to be had there. And sometimes we just need nervous system recovery time afterward, like time in nature or a bath or just to stare at a wall and do nothing for a little (laughs) while, Mm -hmm. get a foot massage. So there are ways that you can sort of support this hypothetical partner who might... um, Give me that foot. Give me that foot. Okay, there we go. I love this. And I'll just just add to this. And this is a reflection I really had to... I had to really sit with this while I was working on the book because this is true of me is that I'm really sensitive and I've gotten more sensitive as I've gotten older, as I've become a mother. And I think it's happened in tandem with becoming more intuitive and more of a creator or even like, dare I say, tapping into my human need to make art. Mm. And so I think that sometimes that can work that way is that the more we're opening up our antenna, Mm. um, the more it's the noise, the, the world is pretty loud. And so we open up our sensitivity, but it makes us pretty liable to being overwhelmed. And so I don't really want to shut down my antenna. I just need to take really good care of the nervous system underneath it. You know, the more I learn, the more I am open to things, the more introspective I get. And I think, I guess the more I'm growing inwards, whereas a lot of what people expect is like outward growth. I'm like, you know, bigger, better, stronger. But like, I feel that way. I just don't want to like show it, you know? Oh, this world of scaling. I I think that there's also, and I don't know if this predates the pregnancy, but when you're pregnant, you're also, first of all, tired. Mm -hmm. Um, And second of all, there's all of this extra um, protective energy that just gets turned on. Like I remember when I'm pregnant, I walk through a crowd and I feel like I'm bracing a little bit. Yeah. Um, And so you're creating this protective energy and you're nesting in a number of different ways. And one of them is psychologically, you're preparing for a dyad, like this bond one-on-one with your child. And so you're not interested right now in like me and the world. Mm -hmm. It's like me and this one bond. And then that evolves over time as that person becomes more independent and autonomous than you might feel naturally more inclined to be me and the world. You talked about it before, but what's an example of true anxiety and how can we work through those? Yeah, so it shows up so different for all of us. I have patients where their true anxiety is that if they're really, if they slow down and they get honest with themselves, they know they're in the wrong relationship or they realize they've outgrown their career and it's no longer in alignment with their values. Um, I have patients who just like when they slow down and listen, they realize they really need to call their grandma more often. Like, and it can be as small as that. And it can be someone being like, like, who am I kidding? I'm, I need to be an activist on this cause that's so important to me. And I can't Mm -hmm. be comfortable sitting back and not taking action Mm -hmm. around that. 
And so it's it's different for all of us and it doesn't have to be lofty or grand or intimidating. It's okay if it is and it's okay if it's call your grandma. Um, it's yeah. whatever is our truth in that moment. I find for me something that, that sticks to me what you're saying there is to slow down and then you realize what what it might be that's sort of the root cause of your anxiety. And the funny thing for me and my personality is I love a fast pace and that sort of energizes me. And then sometimes I think that that pace that I do, it masks certain anxiety that I'm feeling or or it's, you know, it's coming through in my body. And I just ignore it as just a, something that, you know, it's a part of the the fun of what I'm doing and the, and the exhilaration of what I'm doing. And it takes me a reminder from hearing it from you or hearing it from Linda to slow down for a second. Then I'm actually going to feel these things that I wasn't feeling because of the pace of where I was going. And now I can reprioritize or, or look at the things that I have to do that will give me a bit more calm mentally and physically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Drew is notorious for saying, I just don't stress. I don't get anxious. I don't get nervous. I just don't stress. Like I, I love this fast-paced life. But why does and my I, hip hurt when yeah. I'm getting out of bed? <laughs> why is my ankle lopping, locking up every hour or so when I'm walking? Yeah. <laughs> ADT now professionally installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. Help protect what matters most with 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. You said that very professionally. I try. (laughs) Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help you make your home smarter and safer. I don't want to put you on the spot at all. And I'm fine. You know, I have no shame or anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't actually get this impression and sort of observing your energy, but I think that there's so many things that um, keep us hooked on a fast-paced life. And one of them is just, this is what modern life is steering us all into these days. Like if you think about in the 80s and the 90s, the amount of time between cuts on a TV program was mm-hmm. slower. And now it's like... And so we're just changing our um, cadence in modern life, but I also think, and our patience, but but I also think that it can be a distraction or an avoidance technique. Mm -hmm. And that can come from so many things. That can be how someone is working through their ADD. Like if if they sort of need um, a hyper-stimulating environment to keep dopamine at a certain level that makes them feel awake and alert and and attentive, then a fast-paced life can play into that. For some of my patients, I've noticed people with trauma really keep their life scheduled. And it's almost like an avoidance of being still because in the stillness, I think a lot of uncomfortable sensations bubble up in that stillness, whether it's memories Mm -hmm. or um, almost an association with a moment of calm in their childhood home was sometimes like the calm before the storm. And yeah. it, it had a looming sense of dread. And so I, I see avoidance of stillness. It can be so many things, but it is sometimes worth exploring. And it also Absolutely. can be nothing. It can just be being a product of living in 2022. So um, on the topic of anxiety again, can you dig in a little deeper on a few other aspects, thinking about how spirituality plays a role, the sun and how that can help with anxiety? Yeah. All right. Let's go to these topics. So spirituality. Um, I, I'm not here to proselytize by any means, um, but I am here to give people permission to revisit the question. And um, 
And I, I don't know, a lot of people grew up where religion was almost forced on them and they're on their swing of the pendulum away from religion. And I was, I was raised in an environment where it was sort of cool to be an atheist. We sort of worshiped at the altar of science and skepticism. And it would be strange to be somebody with a relationship to spirituality. That was the environment I grew up in. So for me, I had to come to it on my own in my 30s and be like, wait a second, I do connect to some form of spirituality. This feels true to me. And this offers me a connection to something meaningful and comforting, especially when life is challenging. I'm also fully aware of the fact that I might have it wrong. And I'm really okay with that because it's a very comforting wrong. What I see with my patients is that um, whether they're rebelling from organized religion or they grew up in an atheistic environment, some of them, it's a supportive intervention therapeutically to just revisit and just to say like, you have permission to tiptoe back into these questions and see what feels true for you. Mm-hmm. And at the heart of true anxiety is this kind of question of the ultimate worst case scenario would be to die, to lose the people that we love. And that is just the inherent vulnerability of being in a physical body in this world. But I also think that sometimes when we have an earth-shaking spiritual experience, it can change how scary the worst case scenario is. It makes it less scary. And when it feels like there might be more than what we can comprehend to this existence, it makes the idea of loss a little less absolute, just makes the edges a little softer. And I find that that has been immensely comforting for me when I lost my mom, when I just go through the challenges of life. And, and, I, and I want my patients to just at least have access to living those questions. And so spirituality, I think, has a role. We, we shouldn't be scared of it in the, the psychiatric office. I think that without it being like, you know, this isn't theology, but I think it's okay to encourage people to just figure out what is true for you. And that Mm -hmm. might be something that you encounter in a church, or it might be something you encounter when you go hiking, or when you sing in a choir, or when you sit in physics class. There's no right or wrong to this. It's more just connecting to that state of awe and wonder at what the heck is it to be existing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, And I think there's some sort of salved anxiety baked into that. The other aspects were some of the sun and also psychedelics. I have a section in my book called We Got Sunshine Wrong. And it's one of a handful of really like sacred cows where I take a super nuanced view and it's not to be interpreted wrong. So here's the thing. The sun, it comes with risks. Like, you know, skin cancer is very real. Um, So we can't just completely run with this. It's not all or nothing. But I think we might have swung the pendulum just a little too far in the other direction of fearing the sun. And here's why I think that. One is that, you know, the sun helps our skin synthesize vitamin D and we can take vitamin D in supplement form. I think there's a lot of research at this point to suggest that that's not all of the benefit we get from sunshine. There are other photo products that we synthesize, things like nitric oxide that help dilate our blood vessels and lower our blood pressure, endorphins, things that boost our mood and and promote longevity. And so it's not just about vitamin D. We can't always just reproduce what we get from the sun with a pill. And I think the fact that we fear the sun and avoid it it, it it causes a few problems. For people with more melanated skin, it's getting the balance wrong, I think. The balance is always um, getting vitamin D without putting yourself at risk of skin cancer. 
And with more melanated skin, you're just so much more at risk of vitamin D deficiency than of um, skin cancer in a sun-exposed area. Mm -hmm. So I think it's as a disservice to people with more melanated skin to say, slather sunblock on every inch of your body and reapply and avoid the sun. I think we need to be thinking about where did our ancestors descend from? Where, where are we descended from? What kind of sun exposure were they getting? And then for people with more fair skin, it even does a disservice in some sense because we avoid the skin, the sun, we stay so pale. And then there's inevitably that one day when you're at a parade in June or you go on vacation in the Caribbean and then suddenly you get a sunburn. And right. that's where the real risk for skin, for skin cancer exists. It's with burning. And in certain ways, by avoiding the sun, we put ourselves more at risk mm -hmm. of burning when we do have a bigger exposure. And so a little low-grade sun exposure um, year-round can be protective in a number of different ways, helping with vitamin D, helping with all the other photo products, helping regulate our circadian rhythm and improve our mood. And then also in certain ways, preventing a sunburn and in turn being even somewhat protective against skin cancer if you play it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Drew's dad is your ambassador for this because each day they've been staying with us and each day he's just out in the sun with the S sunglasses sits out on. In the sun. well, he at does, least 20 minutes a day. Yeah, about 10, 20 minutes a day. And, you know, sometimes he's definitely, you're seeing the color more because I'm, I'm very Celtic. But he doesn't burn. <laughs> no, no, he doesn't burn. I think he's just, he's built it up over the years of just taking that 10, 20 minutes a day. But yeah. uh I, I would probably burn. <laughs> well, yeah, there, that's exactly, yeah, he's my poster child and that's yeah. exactly the contrast <laughs> we're speaking to. Yeah. yeah. Um, psychedelics, shall we go there? Yes. Sure. I really do stand by all of the caveats. Like they're not safe for everyone. They're, they're really not appropriate for all brains. If someone already has a chaotic brain, a brain with a tendency towards psychosis, I think of it as more damaging than beneficial. But for a lot of people with more rigid or entrenched or stuck tendencies in how their brain functions, um, it can be a really transformative medicine. I think it always needs to be handled with proper set and setting, proper safety measures, um, and reverence for this fact that these are sacred medicines. But given all of that, what I've seen in my practice is that when someone's really stuck, whether it's trauma, whether it's such an entrenched brain habit, um, psychedelics have sometimes been the breakthrough for them. And why there's a lot of interesting research into why they're effective. You know, on some level, they function similarly to our antidepressants. They're active on serotonin receptors. Um, they also promote something called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. Basically, in English, it makes our brains able to um, be plastic, to grow, to change mm. and adapt. And so there's this window after a psychedelic ceremony where you can reframe, where you can look at something a little mm. differently. They also quiet something called the default mode network, which is kind of where we hang out when we feel our sense of ourselves is separate from others. It's also where we future trip and dwell on the past. And that all kind of has to do with protecting the ego. Mm. And when we quiet the default mode network, we have this opportunity to dissolve that narrow sense of the self and to feel connected with others really broadens our sense of what matters to us from just our own personal interests to our communities to all sentient beings to the planet. And, hmm. um, and it's, it's also interesting how psychedelics, there's this thing called the mystical experience hypothesis, which shows that the more peak mystical experience you have in a psychedelic ceremony, that correlates with the antidepressant effect. 
And I think that's really interesting. So it's not just a chemical effect, like, um, you know, we gave you this chemical and it boosts serotonin in your brain and now you're less depressed. It's like the journey itself and what you experience and how it shifts your perspective is protective and has a benefit in its own right. And so I like that. I heard it once described as reverse PTSD. It's almost Mm. like having such an experience of awe and feeling unconditional love or guidance can make you come out of that experience just trusting, able to surrender a little bit more, feeling a little bit more empathy or compassion for other people in your life. So I think for those reasons, it's a really exciting new approach to mental health treatment. For those people who are not as comfortable or don't have access to experimenting or or using psychedelics in a safe setting, is there, because I I feel like with all the research now, it would be so cool if we would be able to get to that place without the use of a psychedelic substance. Like when you have a profound connection with someone or, or something or some place, like That's what I think of when I think of like a a mystical connection as well. Like, is there some scientific study that shows that there is some parallel between like a psychedelic substance as well as like an experience that doesn't require a substance? Yeah, I love that line of questioning. I mean, I think that we already know that things like deep meditative states or holotropic breathing, like you can achieve much of the same benefit without using a psychedelic Um, in a way like and. I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I find like you can think of psychedelics as almost like this little catalyst um, and not everybody needs that. Not everybody mm. wants that. I personally have found it really helpful to have a catalyst. I think mm. I needed a little oomph mm-hmm. um, yeah, to, yeah. to connect, but but it's um, definitely there are paths to arriving at this, you know, a mystical experience or um, quieting our sense of ourselves as separate from others without substances. Do you think you would attempt to experience uh, this state with psychedelics? I would love to, with you. With me? Yeah, only with certain people. Like there are only a handful of people I would trust to to explore this yeah. around. Yeah, yeah as you should. I mean, it really it the veil is thin. You become very sensitive, and you're already aware of that sensitivity in yourself mm-hmm. without substances. Yeah. So you're careful mm-hmm. about what energy comes in. I'll just tell you, labor is a psychedelic experience. <laughs> oh yeah, there you go. That'll be our, our first one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that actually leads in nicely. We like to wrap up our conversations with a speed round, hard hitting mm-hmm. questions. And the first question surrounding parenthood: What is the best parenting advice you can give us? One piece of parenting advice that's been really helpful for me is that everything is for now. So if there's something really hard and it can feel like this is your life now forever, it's going to last about two weeks and then it'll shift. Hmm. And conversely, if something is so exquisite and amazing and precious, it's also going to fade with time. And so just put the phone down and be there. We can't Hmm. hold it. We cannot trap it or grasp it, but we can be wide awake for it. Mm. And I mean, no parent is wide awake ever. But <laughs> can try yeah. to be present for it. Amazing. That's beautiful. The, this pregnancy has felt that way. Um, you know, it felt very slow at first and then now we're here. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Yeah. All right. Next question. What meal makes you feel at home and who cooked it? 
what I had for dinner last night. Um, there's a lot of lentil soup in my household. Mm. And sometimes it's my, my partner's Indian. So he makes a curry lentil soup and that's, mm. that really mm. makes me feel so at home. And it's made with broth and like bone broth and Indian spices. And it's like so nurturing and grounding and smells amazing while it's cooking. Oh. Yeah. Now I'm hungry. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I love lentil Come soup. on over. What are three things on your bedside table? White noise machine, salt lamp, and a little plant. Did you say salt lamp? Yeah. I'm a, I'm a stickler for all the ways that blue light impacts our circadian rhythm. So when I read before bed, I put on this little salt lamp that mm. has a slightly more orange tinted light. And it's a little less mm. disruptive to the circadian rhythm, though I still always insist on wearing... Pulling out gadgets. Oh, yeah. Now she looks like um, Gambit. Oh, yeah. Marmosu, I thought more like I'm ready to do metallurgy or go fly fishing. <laughs> but yeah, these are, yeah. These are my blue walking glasses. You look They cool. make a big nice. difference. Nice. We need to get some of those. Yes. Last question. What is a memorable growth moment? Here's what comes to mind. It's, not a, it's a half big thought because it just happened. But last weekend, my daughter had this huge meltdown. And she's six. Um, it's still happening. And mm -hmm. I realized I played it wrong. And our children, they don't need us to solve the problem. They need us to validate what they're experiencing, kind of tell them the story of why it's hard, what they're going through, and bear witness to it and be there with them. And for all these silly reasons, I like wasn't there. I was holding her bike. She was hiding under the table in a deli. I went outside to be by the bike so it wouldn't get stolen on the streets of New York City. And I was just there kind of scrolling my stupid phone. And it just made it that much. I think she felt so unheld in that moment. Mm. Um, I was basically conveying that I prioritized her bike not getting stolen over being there with mm. her through her challenging emotion. And so if I could play it all again, I would be like, it really does stink that you dropped half your snack on the ground. I get that. Mm. We're still not going to buy a new snack. I'm going to hold that line. But I really validate that it's disappointing to lose half your snack. And I'm here. I'm here yeah. and I'm feeling this with you rather than I'm outside on a bench scrolling my phone kind of unbothered. And so to yeah. really just be there with them. That's such a beautiful example as well of what kids can teach us and how to treat ourselves and other people, not not just kids, I think. Well, and I also am very much in the sense of, I'm a very sort of analytical with many things. Like I would not want the bike to be stolen. That would go through my mind as a priority in a moment. And this is the third time in the last week I've heard a similar sort of a type of a thing in the sense of don't be there trying to solve something with your child. Be there to so that they feel heard and they feel supported. So yeah. I appreciate that advice. Yeah. And, and Linda, to your point, like we are just gigantic toddlers at the end yeah. of the day, all of us, the adults. <laughs> and one of the biggest gifts we can give to each other is just to witness, to just bear witness to what we're going through in this human experience. And we think we don't have much to offer. We don't know the right thing to say. And it's never about that. It's just witnessing each other. It's so therapeutic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It was really, really fun. A lot of things for us to consider and unpack over the, the coming yeah, days. Yeah, thank you so much for your book and everything that you're offering the world. Uh, thank you guys both so much. And I'm sending you all of the good labor vibes. Thank you. Welcome to this psychedelic <laughs> <you>. transcendent journey. <laughs> I'm excited. We're looking forward to it. We're going to share it. We'll, we'll share in our show notes as well a link for your book. 
And by the way, we have an amazing team and just want to say a huge thank you to all of them. We could not do this without them. Brandon Angelino. Annalie Bell. Hannah Fan, Courtney Iwanis. West Friend. Chris Cobain. Nicole Schachter. And Sabrina Ayakobuchi. Also, our theme music is by Victoria Shaw and Chad Carlson. And our music composed and produced by Rick Russo. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have a few seconds, don't forget to subscribe and rate. Yes, please do. Please do. And also leave comments on our social media at At Home. We love to hear from you. ADT now professionally installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT is awesome and believes that the smarter the home, the safer the security. I can't wait to see what they do next. They're going to put Google Nest doorbells on the moon. (laughs) Actually, I'd like to know what's happening at our front door from virtually anywhere with our Google Nest doorbell. I do love how when we're out at dinner, we can see exactly what's going on at the front door. And we can control our ADT smart devices like... Lights, locks, the security system with Google Nest speakers and displays. Mm-hmm. All you have to say is, hey, Google, to get started. Well, I think it's great for people to help protect what matters most with all of this. Plus, 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help make your home smarter and safer. Hey, Google.